Well, good morning, church. Uh, I trust that you weren't expecting our sermon to be necessarily on video for you, but trust me when I say that this is as strange for me as it might be for you. This might be one of the first sermons you've heard from your pastor's basement, but I have full confidence. I was talking to Dan earlier that this is the Lord's plan for us, and he, he's not um, slowed down at all in what he's doing among us in bringing his word to us. I thank, I thank God that we still get to do this somehow, and then we get to gather and sing even virtually. Um, so, so thank you for even just being able to take all these things in stride and to, for also just for sending texts and emails uh, about praying, praying for me and for others who are feeling sick right now. And, and there's just a joy in being a part of a church family that cares about your next meal or how, how you're feeling or whatever it might be, especially uh, especially during this time where everybody could be so so busy and, and caught up in, in everything that they're doing, but you are ever, ever caring and looking to the interests of others, which I just am humbled by. But we're gonna keep we're gonna keep going along in our sermon series in Ruth and we're coming to the last chapter. So for those of you who haven't been with us before this, this is our journey in looking at the coming of Christ, actually going through the book of Ruth. So kids, when are we supposed to celebrate Christmas? Just December 25th? Just yesterday? Or can we go on celebrating a little bit longer? Because I don't think that when you went to sleep last night, that somehow you have to wait 365 days until you start talking or singing or, or remembering Jesus' birth. In fact, today is a test for us. Today is our first chance to keep talking about and keep celebrating Jesus far beyond Christmas and to keep celebrating His coming. It's been the season of Christmas cards and Happy Holiday wishes. Our mailboxes have been packed with all sorts of things. I know I know mine has. And I got a letter from, from one of my banks that described the, the legend of how the, sto- the song Silent Night was written. And in between verses of Silent Night, it was telling the story. And it was a neat story, and I really enjoyed it. And it did actually point my attention to Christ because uh, it, you know, it's it's talking about things like Christ the Savior is born. It's quoting the song. Um, but something made me really curious right near the end, just before it said, Jesus, Lord, thy, thy birth. And it said this, which I thought was true. It said Christmas is not about the the lights and the decorations. I'd say, yes, it's not just about the lights and the decorations. It, in fact, it has very little to do with the lights and decorations. It, it has everything to do with Christ, but but the letter went on to say that Christmas is a feeling of calm and warmth when we gather together and remember that silent night. Now, I think a lot of you would agree that part of that sounds great, and and in a lot of ways, that's where we're at culturally with Christmas. Christmas is a feeling. Christmas is this kind of mode that you get into around this time of year as we celebrate and focus on the good things. But is Christmas just about the feeling you get from reminiscing on Jesus's birth? 
I'm absolutely sure that that we can have some of that comfort and that warmth, um, especially when we're celebrating Christmas together. But Christmas is about less than, it's not about a feeling purely. It's about remembering a glorious person. Granted, the joy can come, but it comes and springs from looking at that glorious person who didn't remain a baby in a manger. That's what the close of our journey through Ruth is actually all about. This last scene will show us that we don't have a Redeemer without Christmas, but thankfully Christmas was just the first in-person glimpse of who that Redeemer really is. So spoiler alert, that's the, that's the high note that we're headed towards today. But do you remember where we ended last week in Ruth 3? We ended with Naomi and Ruth waiting for the final word on how Boaz would handle the matter of Ruth calling him to redeem her. Is there hope for Elimelech's line and Naomi's future? First, there's business to attend to, and that involves this redeemer who is a closer relative than Boaz. I have a few points for you, but the first is the selfish redeemer. Verses 1 to 6. The selfish redeemer. So Boaz, after sending Ruth off, makes straightway to the gate of the town after sending Ruth off from the threshing floor with more food. The town gate is kind of like a town hall, except it serves multiple purposes. It's where the townspeople settle legal business and gather together on other important matters so that the elders of the town could witness it and affirm any transactions or legally binding agreements. So Boaz sits down there to show that he has something important to talk about. Partway through verse 1, we're, su- we're surprised when this other man shows up. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. So we don't know who this man is. In fact, Boaz doesn't call him by name at all, so we don't even have a hint there. We're also not sure if this man was off to work as a passerby or if he was summoned to this very important meeting. But nonetheless, everyone was present that needed to be present, and this meeting was set to adjourn. Boaz tells his business to this nearer redeemer in verse 3. Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. So we're reminded again of part of Naomi's problem. She's a widow, and she cannot farm the land that was Elimelech's, so she's forced to offload it for temporary provisions. Boaz calls this man to redeem that land as a relative so that the land stays in the family rather than being left to a stranger. Boaz needs to know if this man will follow through, because if he doesn't, fulfill that duty to redeem, then Boaz will keep his own word and redeem it instead. This unnamed man pretty happily says, I'll I'll redeem it. I'll do that for my relative's family and I'll farm the land. Sure, why not? But here's the catch. 
Boaz knows there's more to the situation than just Naomi and the land. He says in verse 5, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. We talked last week about the way that God designed marriage to widows in Israel to serve as a way for a family line to no longer be blotted out. Boaz is showing that redeeming the land and marrying Ruth are a package deal. They come together. If you want to redeem the land, you must also marry this Moabite widow to carry on Elimelech's family line and preserve his inheritance. You see, if, if all there was was an older widow who couldn't have any children, this Redeemer would have to take care of Naomi, yes, but the land and Naomi would be absorbed into his own family in a sense because Naomi's family was a dead end and couldn't be added to. However, this young Moabite woman would also need to be taken care of, namely by marrying her and then providing children for Elimelech so his name would not be blotted out from Israel. It was the duty of this relative to do so, but it also meant that this man's future would instead be absorbed in the opposite direction into Elimelech's family as he would provide heirs through Ruth. So here's his response. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself for I cannot redeem it. He spoke very clearly before, I will redeem it. But with the introduction of two mouths to feed, marrying a Moabite and having children to carry on his relative's name rather than his own? No, no, I can't, I can't redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. You are free to redeem it, Boaz, because I can't. This man stands in direct contrast to Boaz. He is primarily concerned with his future and would not sacrifice that security and inheritance. He would take the land, sure, but he would not humbly forfeit his future for the sake of his family, for the sake of these widows. Granted, he is entrusting that to Boaz. But here's the really sad part about this point in the scene. This man thinks he is doing himself a favor by trying to preserve his own inheritance. But do you see the last word in this chapter? David. King David. If this man married Ruth, God could have used him to be David's great-grandfather and ultimately the forefather of Jesus himself, which we'll get to. Instead, that goes to Boaz, and this man literally re remains nameless in the book of Ruth. In trying to look out for number one, he missed something so much greater. And he's not the focus of this passage, but how he acts is instructive for you and me. He is unwilling to make the selfless move here because he doesn't want his future to get messed up. And in doing so, he cut himself out of so much blessing and such a better future. He could have been the Boaz in this story. But his fear of taking a risk and making the selfless move took him out of the running for future reward. Friends, I'm speaking for myself here, that, that, but that phrase, lest I impair my own inheritance, is 
kind of symbolic for every reason why you and I choose not to do things that require sacrifice for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed yourself saying, sorry, I can't do blank lest I disrupt my well-crafted schedule? Sorry, that's a bit too much. or It will keep me from being well-rested. I can't go out of my way for that. I can't because I've got better plans for that money. I can't because it will jeopardize my comfort level that I've worked so hard to achieve or it would damage my reputation. Friends, Jesus was not like this. Washing feet, offering up his own body. In fact, his very life for others. Greater love has no one in this than, than that someone lay down his life for his friends, John 15, 13. Paul was not like this, spending and being spent for the souls of others. We shouldn't be like this, working on a future that is foolproof and secure here on earth. Again, I say that tongue-in-cheek because I need the help of the Spirit to prepare me for eternity Jesus says that that attitude reveals a lot about us. In Matthew 6, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's not just talking about money. It's talking about your, your efforts, what are you living for? Because if it's not stored up in heaven, then your heart is tethered on earth. We can all grow in this, and we can all grow in exhorting each other to that end, to embody Boaz-like, Christ-like selflessness, which we're about to see here as the baton is passed to the more worthy and more upright man. That leads us to point number two, the done deal. Verse seven. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was a manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi, all that belonged to Elinowak, and all that belonged to Kilian and Malon, and also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. As the nearer redeemer takes off his sandal and hands it to Boaz, he transfers the right to redeem in the presence of this of these witnesses. And Boaz calls those witnesses to acknowledge what he's doing. Boaz has kept his word. He has followed through with not only redeeming Naomi, but taking Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, to be his lawfully wedded wife. Why? To perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead might not be cut off from among his brothers. Elimelech, who once left the promised land and who died along with his sons, leaving no heirs, had had his family restored by a relative, Boaz, their redeemer. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. 
May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. The elders and men who are witnesses to this exchange bless not Boaz, but Ruth. They asked that God would make her like Rachel and Leah, who were Jacob's wives, as you might remember, and who were essentially matriarchs to the whole nation of Israel. So they want Ruth, the foreign Moabite, to be blessed and as well known as Rachel and Leah. You couldn't get bigger names among women in Israel's history. So not only that, but they draw attention to Boaz's ancestors as well. Boaz is from Bethlehem in what tribe? Judah. So they also want Ruth's house to be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Wait a minute. Do you remember the story of how Judah got sons from Tamar? None of the relatives would fulfill the duty of giving children to the widow Tamar, so Tamar had to trick her father-in-law, Judah, into getting her pregnant with twins named Zerah and Perez. So, incest is a part of Ruth's family history, but Boaz's too. But why would these people want the offspring of Ruth to be like the household of Perez? I think the answer lies in Judah being the head of that family and Perez being the next in line because Judah's dad, Jacob, said something very important to Judah on his deathbed in Genesis 49, where Jacob blesses all his sons and basically kind of lays out a picture of what each of these tribes will fulfill in the future. This is what he says about Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the, the obedience of the peoples. So, Ruth, may, may your household be like the household of Perez, the son of Judah, who this promise was given. Ruth, may your offspring fulfill this prophecy. May the one who would come from this marriage between you and Boaz be this man who will rule forever, who will embody uh, a, a strong king. And do you sense that anticipation? It kind of tells you, okay, look for somebody who's coming from the tribe of Judah. And look here at at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And side note, just just really quickly, did you notice that Ruth was married before and never was able to have children previously? And this is kind of a subtle note that it, it really was the Lord who made her conceive with Boaz, and it proves that this is his hand and his plan working itself out. But But even their son is the first, another glimpse of, okay, somebody must be coming from Judah. That leads us to point number three, the emptiness filled. Naomi needed food. She needed someone to redeem her land. 
But more than that, she needed her emptiness filled by offspring being brought to her late husband, Elimelech. And here Ruth is giving birth to a son. It's not just the men who are dishing out blessings on this family. Look in verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. The Lord, the God of Israel, the God who, who Naomi thought was against her, has been working behind the scenes this whole story. And guess what? He has not left Naomi without a redeemer. Instead, he has given her this grandson who would be to her, get this, a restorer of life and a nourisher of her old age. Oh, how different that sounds than the beginning of this story. Call me Mara. I am bitter. The Lord has stripped me of everything. Instead, Naomi gets a restorer of life and a nourisher because her daughter-in-law, who loves her, is better than seven sons. A woman who bore seven sons would be so honored because she would have played a part in establishing that family for generations to come. But here these women are saying, this Moabite girl who represents God's covenant love better than most Israelites is far better than even seven sons. It's no wonder that Naomi responds the way she does. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. But wait a minute, this is Naomi's grandson. Do you think they're just mistaken? The point is that this child represents the filling of Naomi who came to Bethlehem as this grieved widow but who stays as a recipient of God's gracious kindness. And all of that is wrapped up in this moment of Naomi drawing this child close to her and caring for him. And what a sweet moment for, for any grandmother, but especially so for someone who was so uh, dependent on offspring coming to her family and how she must have cherished this new child. And that leads us to point number four, the long-expected king. The close of this story seems like the credits at the end of a movie. Oh, by the way, this kid that Ruth and Boaz had, here's how his family shaped up. When in reality, this is the climax. Look at verse, the end of verse 17. The women named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse the father of David. Remember that Naomi's personal emptiness isn't the only place we started off in this book a month ago. Her emptiness has been filled with this grandson who is proof that God has not been against her this whole time. But remember, Israel and Judges was in a horrible place too. And the author of Judges uses that repeating phrase, and there was no king in Israel. Guess who Boaz's great-grandson is? David, the king, the king of Israel, the one who was a man after God's own heart, who would give Israel and us 
most of the Psalms. David is one of the most important men in Israel's history, and he has come, back it up just a little bit, he has come through this whole interchange that we've been learning about between Boaz and Ruth the Moabite. God supplied Israel with a king, a king to stabilize them and bring them to worship God alone. Thankfully, the days under David were not like the days of the judges, and God used David to restore Israel. But God would use David's ancestor to restore the world. He would be the ruler from Judah, like Genesis 49 just told us. But he will also be the fulfillment of a promise given to David himself, and also a promise given through Micah, and also a promise given through Isaiah. Here's the promise God made to David in 2 Samuel 7. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me. Your throne shall be established forever. What a promise to a king. But how? How could anyone sit on David's throne literally forever? Well, It's the same person that Micah told us about at the beginning of this sermon series, Micah 5, 2 through 4. So we're looking for someone from the tribe of Judah and someone who would follow in David's lineage. We're also looking for someone from Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, that's Elimelech's clan within this town, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now... He shall be great to the ends of the earth. This doesn't sound like a regular king, but we're looking for him. We're looking for someone from Judah, someone who would sit on David's throne forever, who would also come from Bethlehem as this shepherd, who's also the same person whom Isaiah foretells in Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over David's kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Each of these has a promise, the scepter will not depart. I will establish your throne forever. He will rule forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts 
will do this. Who is this ruler of Judah? Who is this son of David, this Bethlehem shepherd, and who yet comes to us as a helpless child? Friends, he is our long-expected Jesus. We sing that familiar song, Come, that long-expected Jesus, and those words have been stuck in my head, a, a part of that song. It says this, Born a child, and yet a king, our king, the king of the world, and the king of this church, your king. We celebrated him yesterday, but church, we will go on worshiping and celebrating him because the main idea of Ruth 4 and the main idea of Ruth and one of the main ideas in all of scripture is this, Jesus, the son of David and the king of kings is your redeemer. This sermon and this sermon series has been spent retelling you the story of Ruth. And admittedly, I haven't given you much by way of like takeaways or uh, things that you can start implementing tomorrow. But part of the reason why is because as we slowly walk through the story, it's meant to cause us to wonder at a few things first. To wonder that God himself has not left us without a savior, without a redeemer. To wonder at how God chose to rescue us through a baby, similarly to how he chose to restore Naomi ultimately by bringing a baby. In the midst of the commotion of Christmas, if you haven't had the chance to stop and just thank our gracious and generous God for supplying us with a Redeemer. Church, now is your chance. Now is the chance to, to look at the story of Ruth and to say, my God is the same, the one who works behind the scenes and who according to his abundant grace and kindness has sent someone to me, has sent someone who can rescue me. We, like Naomi, had nothing and were empty. We were unable to help ourselves. But he sent Jesus. God sent his own son. Similarly to how he brought Ruth and Boaz into the story to act and to restore and fill Naomi's emptiness. Jesus took us in our helplessness and sin and redeemed us, meaning he paid the price of blood to take us from a spiritual deadness and poverty to restore us to a new and eternal life. He risked and gave his own life and self-giving love to open up a way to be restored to the Father. Friends, this is what Christmas is about. And if 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 I could talk about Ruth as kind of the si one step in the sidewalk that leads to the front door of Christmas and our introduction to God in the flesh, and that's worth celebrating. It's worth knowing that, that we have abundant assurance that God has been working this for his glory long before we were ever around. And yet, for some reason, he has chosen to include us in his story of salvation and has brought to us the benefits that come from knowing him and from opening blind eyes and causing us to see the glory of Christ. The book of Ruth is not just a beautiful story. It's a picture of God's sovereign salvation that we see in the flesh, in Jesus. And really, the, the application of this whole sermon series is to worship the one whom God sent.
It's a jump of about a thousand years between the events of Ruth and the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew. But listen to this. Matthew verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nation. Nation, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. We didn't even get the chance to go into that, but Boaz is Rahab's son. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. I'll go on a little bit further. And Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Friends, without the story of Ruth, we get no story of the coming of Jesus. And without the coming of Jesus, we have no Redeemer. But praise God that you and I have a Redeemer, who is also the King of Kings the long-awaited one who will rule and will never be dethroned. He will sit on David's throne forever because he has conquered death and rendered it powerless. After the Christmas festivities are done, after the post-holiday blues set in, after the new year rolls around, let's go on worshiping the King of glory who humbled himself, coming as a helpless baby who died, who rose again and ascended to the Father's side as the King who has redeemed us. That is the one task that we have in all of our life, is after having been rescued and redeemed, to offer praise and thanksgiving to God for eternity, for what He's done for us. And we're once again in a position right now, you and I, where we're awaiting the arrival of Jesus. We want to see him come. And in some ways, he is still our long-expected Jesus. But I hope that this trip from Ruth to David to Jesus proves that God has kept all of those promises from Genesis, from Micah, from 2 Samuel and Isaiah in bringing Jesus the first time. Oh, how we can have utmost confidence that he will arrive again, this time as the conqueror coming to rescue his bride, a bride that rejoices in the fact that he came to us in the first place, who gave us his spirit as a down payment, as a guarantee of that inheritance that will come. So together we can say, come long expected Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks and praise for giving us your son, who is not just that small child, though he was, who is also the king of kings, the long-awaited ruler, Judah's descendant, David's son, offspring of Ruth and Boaz, a very real man and someone who was truly God. Oh, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his coming to us, and we thank you that you, Jesus, will come again for us. So come, long-expected Jesus. We long to see your face. 
We long to be with you. We long to rejoice over what you've done for us. But let us do so now, Lord. Help us. Help us to sing. Help us to worship you now, our King of Kings. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.